passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, good morning. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 3. That's our passage for this morning. One theme that we've seen um, crop up over the last month or so as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel is um, we've seen this, this desperate need uh, from the people of God during, during the beginning of 1 Samuel uh, for God. Uh, things are, are really rough at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and there's this desperate need for God to, to step in, God to intervene on their behalf. And Israel is in the midst of, of suffering, and, and a lot of that has to do with the leadership of the nation at that time. They are, they're suffering under morally compromised leaders uh, who, who honestly are in varying degrees of awfulness. That's actually one of the things that we see in the book of Judges, uh, which kind of sets the scene for 1 Samuel, is that Almost all of the judges are compromised morally in at least some way, just to varying degrees. And, and that's what we saw last week as well. As we were in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we, we looked at the, the sons of Eli. And Eli is the high priest. He's, he's the one who's supposed to, to oversee worship for the entire nation of Israel. He's also a judge. He's, he's this leader of the people of Israel. And yet his sons are completely... Not just, not just indifferent to the things of God, but they're actually going out of their way to, to take advantage of their positions as, as priests, as sons of the high priests, to, uh, to further their own agenda, to get what they want out of the worship of God. And, and last week we saw verse 17 of 1 Samuel chapter 2 kind of sums up uh, God's perspective on these two men. It says this, Thus the, son of, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. As leaders go, so goes the nation. And that's certainly true for the people of Israel. Israel is, is meant to be this shining beacon of, of the goodness of God to, to the whole, earth, whole world. And, and yet they're, they're far from God. They, they don't have a, a, a relationship with God that is, that is healthy and vibrant and full. They're supposed to be standing in, in this position of just complete, utter contrast to the, the pagan nations surrounding them. And yet, they look exactly like the pagan nations. There seems to be very little hope for the future. Israel is supposed to bear fruit, and yet they're the ones who are barren. They're, they're supposed to be this light to the nations, and yet they're almost consumed with darkness. And yet what we saw last week was that in the midst of, of this brokenness, God has, has promised to do something to fix the problem that is facing his people, to save his people from the sin that is facing them, and bring them back to himself. And that's... The, the focus of the beginning of, of 1 Samuel, in spite of all of the brokenness that is afflicting the people of Israel, most of it is, is self-inflicted, it's caused by their sin and their disobedience, God is at work. 
And that's what we saw last week in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In spite of all of the wickedness of Eli's family, all the wickedness of Eli's sons, there's this thread throughout 1 Samuel chapter 2 about how God is doing something. He's doing something through the faithful family of not Eli, but Elkanah. And God is going to do something that will bring his people back to himself. Now, you might, you might ask, okay, we understand that's where this is leading, but, but how exactly is God going to do that? How is he going to take this, this nation that is opposed to him, that doesn't really care about him, that is far from him, how is he going to bring them back to himself? How is, how is God going to transform and reform this nation so that they are actually living lives that are concerned with the glory of God? And this is a question that doesn't just matter for 3,000 years ago during the time of the beginning of 1 Samuel, but it matters for us today as well. Throughout the ages, how does God stir up a heart of faith among his people that actually cares about following him? When God's people have grown cold in their faith, how does God bring them back to himself? One pastor from the 1700s, uh, describing this, this time of, of spiritual renewal in the American colonies, Jonathan Edwards wrote this short book that's called A Faithful Narrative About the Surprising Work of God. We're not going to get into that book, but I just love the title. A Faithful Narrative About a Surprising Work of God. And I, I find that last part, a surprising work of God, a, a very relevant way of, of looking at how God is at work in this passage. Because just like the 1700s in the American colonies, just like the 1500s in Europe, just like the 300s and 400s in North Africa, just like the 50s around the Mediterranean Sea in the Roman Empire, God is doing something surprising. He's doing something new. And we look at what God is doing and we say, this is a surprising work of God. 1 Samuel 3 is going to show us that God is doing something new. A, a new chapter is about to begin in the big story of the Bible, the big story of what God is doing to save people, to bring people back to him, to reverse the curse of sin and death that is rooted all the way back in the garden. I can't overemphasize how important 1 Samuel chapter 3 is in the story of God's plan to save people. Because God is doing something new. How is God going to bring people back to himself? Let's go ahead and take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is the story of, of Samuel's calling. It's probably a, a, a story that if you've been in the church, uh, you are familiar with. We're going to notice as we look at this passage that the heart of this story is verses 4 through 18. That's the call of, of Samuel. And yet... The key to understanding what this chapter is saying is actually found in the bookends. So not in 4 through 18 necessarily, but in the verses before and the verses afterward helps us understand the surprising work of God. Notice that verses 1 through 3 and then 19 through 4, chapter 4 verse 1 show us what God is doing. They mirror one another. And yet they show that God has done something transformative. At the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3, Israel is like this. And yet by the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3, Israel is now like this because God has done something new. 
There's a surprising work of God that is taking place. But what is it? Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll open God's word and find out. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us through this text. We ask that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, that you would increase our love for you. We thank you for sending us your spirit to help us to encounter you through your word, and we ask that that would be the case this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this text begins by describing the state of the people of God, the sobering state of the people of God, before the turning point of chapter 3. And I've labeled the beginning of this as God is silent, because that's what we see from these first three verses, that in the midst of Israel, and all of their brokenness and all of their sin, it seems as though God is Silent. The prophet that we saw last week, who comes and speaks to Eli in chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, that's the exception rather than the rule. So go ahead and, and pick up in verses 1 through 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. This text comes right after the prophecy that we saw last week in, in the end of chapter 2. This prophecy is announcing judgment upon the family of Eli because of their sin. And if you were here with us last week, if you remember, we saw how the events of chapter 2, verses 11 through 36, they, they switch back and forth between the family of Eli and this corrupt, morally bankrupt family that's actually supposed to lead the people of God, and this faithful family of Elkanah. And the story jumps back and forth as this contrast, showing us that in the midst of the darkest time in Israel's history, God is at work. God is doing something to prepare his people, to bring them back to himself. And one of the darkest times in Israel's history, God is still faithful. So if we look in chapter 3, we see it starts the exact same way. It uses the exact same language that we saw in chapter 2 to describe Samuel. Consider from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of of Eli the priest. In verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Then we get to here in chapter 3. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. This chapter begins by reminding us that though there's this turmoil that has been caused in the nation of Israel because of the wickedness of Eli's family, Samuel remains faithful. And just a side note on Samuel at this point, we don't know how old Samuel is at the beginning of, of chapter 3, at this time of his calling. If you look at a lot of children's Bibles, you'll see that Samuel is a boy. He's, he's six, seven, eight years old. Um, that's possible, but this word that's used here to describe Samuel, it's translated as boy at the beginning of, of chapter 3, is, is a word that can have a, a wide range of ages. And so it's actually used in chapter 2, verse 17, to describe the sons of Eli. 
they are both considered boys in that regard, and they're probably in their 30s or even in their 40s by this time. So when we look at Samuel, we're not really sure how old he is, but we see over the course of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3 that there's this emphasis on the fact that he is growing. He's not just growing in age, but he's also growing in stature and in favor with God. If I had to guess, I would say that around this time, Samuel is probably an adolescent. He's probably maybe even just a young teenager. He's, he's, in his, he's 12, he's 13, he's, he's 14 at this point. He's been faithfully serving God for about a decade by this point, and, and his faithful service to God is a good thing, not only because of the wickedness of Israel's priests, but also because what the end of verse 1 tells us. It doesn't just tell us, that Samuel is ministering to the Lord, notice what else it says. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This is an important statement for us to wrestle with. If we grasp what 1 Samuel is saying here in this half of a verse, it, it helps us better understand the rest of the message of this chapter. So what is the text saying? What does it mean when it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days? Are we looking at this situation where copies of the Bible, for them it would have been the first five books of the Bible, that those copies are hard to find. You can't really get your hands on them. Is that what it's referring to? Well, whenever we have a question like this from Scripture, the answer is usually found by reading the rest of the context, it's reading the passage in its context. If, if we're wondering what it means that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, the answer is actually given to us in the very next part of this statement. It's a further description of what life was like in Israel at that time. This verse isn't describing two things that are afflicting Israel, but using one to further explain the issue. The word of the Lord was rare. And what does that mean? Well, it means that there was no frequent vision. We're still not sure what exactly this means. We look at the rest of the chapter as a whole, and we see how things end at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So 1 Samuel chapter 3 is, is introducing us to a time where prophecy is rare in Israel. And we can tell by what we just read at the end of this chapter, that's about to change. Indeed, by, uh, it has been several centuries by this point since we've actually had a prophet that we know their name. The last named prophet before the calling of Samuel was Moses. And every now and then we have this unnamed prophet who will show up and share something in the book of Judges or, or like what we saw last week in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But prophecy is rare. And as an extension of that, because they don't have the full word of God revealed in the Bible, the word of God is rare. And because the word of God is rare, the people suffer under wicked leaders like Hophni and Phinehas and even Eli. This is the context that we see God is about to do something new. 
There's this vicious cycle of sin. Elsewhere, it tells us that God will sometimes remove his voice. He will stop speaking to his people because of the sin of his people, the disobedience of his people. So we look at Amos later on in the Bible. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Where there's an absence of the word of God, sin increases. And if we were to ask, well, what is the root problem here? Did God stop speaking and so his people began to sin? Or did God stop seeking, speaking because his people were sinning? And I'd say well, the answer is probably yes. Both of these things happen. It's a rough time to live in Israel. The phrase in those days that we saw here in verse 1 makes this very clear. It reminds us of another statement from around this time describing what life was like in Israel in those days. In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel is in a bad place. There's no king to point them to the Lord. Their leaders are wicked and they show contempt for God. Even the prophets are rare, which means that the voice of God itself is not there. There's no direction on how to live in a way that honors God. And we'll talk more about this idea of, of prophecy in the Bible. What exactly does it mean later? But I think for now it's important to just take it at face value. God is silent and because God is silent, Israel continues to live in their sin. And yet in spite of all of this, the text also makes it very clear that God is about to do something to fix this problem. That's what we see in verse 2, verse 3, as we look at Eli and we look at Samuel. Let's read those two verses again. At that time, Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. You see this contrast here. Verse 2 tells us that Eli's eyesight is deteriorating. This is probably just a, a very true statement about his physical health. Last week we saw he was in his late 80s. He's, he's in his early 90s by this time. It's at the same time, it's also hard not to interpret this as a statement about his spiritual eyesight, his, his ability to see things spiritually. After all, verse 1 ends by saying there was no frequent vision, and then verse 2 starts by talking about Eli's vision. This is a man who is leading the people of God, and yet he can't clearly see the things of God. More importantly, look at verse 2 and where Eli is staying and contrast that with where Samuel is staying. It tells us that Eli is lying down in his own room, probably as part of this tabernacle complex, uh, the, the worship complex in Shiloh, and yet that's contrasted with Samuel. Where Samuel, it says that he is lying down in the temple, in this place where God dwells, in the tabernacle. And he's not only lying down in the tabernacle, he's lying down in, near the ark. 
Notice the contrast here between Eli and Samuel. Eli is staying in his own room. Samuel is staying near the presence of God, near the ark. We'll look at more about the ark next week, but for now, let me just say the ark is, is roughly the equivalent to the footstool of the throne of God. It's a place where God himself was said to be. So we read in Exodus, and notice what it says. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, or the cover of the ark, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Notice that it says that the presence of God is not found in the ark, but God is above the ark. Because the ark is the, the footstool of God's throne. The ark is associated with the presence of God and Samuel is dwelling near it. And we can see that, that, that the author of 1 Samuel, he's telling us this for a reason. That God's about to do something and there's a difference here between Samuel and Eli. And, and the word of God is rare and it looks like God is about to change something. So we get to the heart of our passage, verses 4 through 18, and we see that God is going to call a prophet. That's what Samuel is. He's, he's a prophet. It's deep in the middle of the night. This is a reference here to the, the lamp of God not going out in verse 3. It's, it's in the middle of the night, and then we see in verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. So in the middle of the night, we have God calling out to Samuel, and Samuel responds with obedience. He says, here I am, and there's just one problem. He, he responds with obedience to the wrong person. So he wakes up, and, and he probably has had to do this in the past, and, and Eli has probably shouted out in the middle of the night for help in the past. And so Samuel goes and runs over to Eli and says, here I am. What do you need from me? And Eli has no idea what's going on. You just woke me up, Samuel. And he says, go back to bed. I don't need anything. That wasn't me. We see it again. Verse 6. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me, but he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. So a second time, God calls out to Samuel. A second time, Samuel responds with obedience. A second time, he responds to the wrong person, doesn't recognize the voice of God. And so he goes to Eli. A second time, Eli tells him to go back to bed because it wasn't him. Verse 7 gives us an explanation as to why Samuel is responding in this way. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now you read that statement, and it can be pretty shocking for us, especially if you were here with us last week, and you saw the last time it said that someone did not know the Lord was the two sons of Eli. There it was the scathing condemnation of Eli's sons. Is the text doing something similar here? Well, what does the context say? Again, the second half of this statement, after it says, and Samuel did not, know the, did not yet know the Lord, it helps us understand what Samuel means when it is saying that. 
It means that he doesn't recognize God's voice these two times because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So that's what it means when it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. It's meaning that God has not yet spoken to Samuel directly. This prophet has not yet heard the voice of God. It's not saying that he doesn't have a relationship with God. It's just because prophecy is, is rare in those days. And because prophecy is rare, he's never heard the audible voice of God before. This, of course, is about to change. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So a third time, we have God calling out to Samuel. A third time, Samuel responds with obedience. A third time, he goes to the wrong person. But now there's a change. At long last, Eli perceives. And this word perceive is a very important word. It's, it's saying that he's at long last being, I think, awoken from his spiritual um, blindness. Perceive is a sight word. He's, he's now able to see that something is going on. This man who's, who's nearly physically blind obviously has a spiritual blind spot. He can finally see that God is at work. At long last, the high priest, this person who's supposed to lead the people of Israel in worship to God, finally understands a little bit of what God is doing. And so Eli gives Samuel these instructions. He says, head back to bed, but this time, if you hear the voice again, don't respond to me, respond to God. And that's what Samuel does. Verse 10, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. So we have a fourth time God calls out to Samuel, but notice that things are different this time. And it's not just with Samuel's response. The difference actually starts with God. The text tells us in verse 10 that God, no longer does he just call for Samuel, it tells us that he comes to Samuel. I don't know exactly what it means that it says that he comes and stands with Samuel, but it's clearly communicating this closeness. That, that there's this closeness now between Samuel and God, and, and following Eli's instructions, Samuel responds to God. And a lot of people will read into, there's this difference here between uh, what Samuel does in verse 10 and, and what Eli had instructed in verse 9. I don't think we should read too much into that. I don't know about you, but if God appeared to me, I'd probably forget the specifics of the instructions that were given to me on how to respond. So God has Samuel's attention here, and he communicates this news about what he is going to do. He's going to bring judgment on the house of Eli for their sin. By extension, he's going to bring judgment upon the people of Israel because of the sin of Israel as a whole. They followed the leadership of their wicked leaders. Take a look at verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who, has, who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him, that I am about to punish his house forever. 
for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. I think it's significant that the first word of prophecy that Samuel is given here is the exact same message that we saw from chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have this unknown prophet who comes and years before this in chapter 3 says, Judgment is coming, Eli, upon your house because of your lack of action and your lack of concern for the things of God. And now, Samuel's first word of prophecy is to confirm this exact thing. God is indeed doing something new among his people. He's going to save his people from the darkness of sin. And how does he do it? He speaks to them. We looked at this statement of judgment last week about the house of Eli. I don't think we need to do it again this week. Just note that, last, like last week, Eli himself is just as to blame as his sons were because he refused to intervene in their lives. The text reveals how awful God sees it when our actions are, are an abomination to God, when they discredit the glory of God. It says that they were blaspheming God with their actions. And because Eli doesn't do anything, judgment is coming. And I mentioned that this judgment isn't just on the house of Eli, it's also on the people of Israel as a whole. Why do I say that? Well, for starters, verse 11 tells us that God is going to do something in, uh, in Israel that is absolutely shocking. The text doesn't say, I'm going to do something to Eli's house. He says, I'm going to do something in Israel. But then we get to chapter 4, and we look at chapter 4, and we see that part of this judgment upon the house of, of Eli is that the Philistines are going to capture the ark of God. There's no greater sign of judgment on the people of Israel for their sin than the fact that the ark actually gets taken from them. The, the place where God is said to dwell is taken from them. Can you imagine what it is like being Samuel in this moment? Think back to when you were 12 or 13. God has spoken to you, and the thing that God has said to you is a statement assuring that judgment is coming, judgment for your boss, who's also your adoptive father, and not just judgment upon him, but judgment upon the entire nation of your people. How does this new prophet respond? Samuel lay until morning. Of course he did. I wouldn't want to do anything right away either. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors to the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you 
and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him, and he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I find these verses very compelling because Samuel, as is natural, he doesn't want to tell Eli. He knows that a prophet's job isn't just to hear the word of God, but it's also to, to tell the word of God. And that thought is uncomfortable to him. He says, it says that he's afraid. This is probably a sign of his affection for, for Eli. And yet when dawn arrives, he gets up, he opens the doors of the tabernacle, because now it's time to worship. Eli's words to Samuel this next morning actually probably make it easier for Samuel. Because Eli, in his words, this is a common phrase of a curse. That if Samuel doesn't do these things to, doesn't listen to Eli, doesn't tell Eli what Samuel has heard from God, then he's saying, I, want, I, I, I ask God that you would be cursed. And so Samuel's really left without any option, and he gives the hard message to Eli. The text actually tells us that, that he told him everything, that he hid nothing from him. How does Eli respond? And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Again, I, I, I think Eli's response here is, is actually a really compelling argument for why this is historical. This is something that probably actually happened according to this text. Not probably, it is something that happened. If this was a made-up story... You wouldn't give us such a complex character like Eli. Someone who is both sinful and yet also has admirable qualities about him. To this point, the, the picture of Eli that we are given is, is largely negative. We have a few positive glimpses. He's, he's someone who blesses Hannah. He welcomes Samuel into his family and service, but as a whole, he's someone who's more concerned with his sons and his own appetite than he is with the glory of God. And yet, when he hears of the impending judgment coming upon him and coming upon his family, his response, I think, is, is quite admirable. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God, that God is this king who reigns over all, and because he's the king, he has the right to do whatever he wants, even if that means judgment upon Eli and judgment upon his family because of their sin. And more than that, though, I think, I think Eli's words here are a confirmation of the message that, that Samuel is indeed a prophet. He, he recognizes that this is the exact same message he heard years before from this unknown prophet. And now Samuel is saying the exact same thing. He's speaking the word of God again. This is the surprising work of God, that God has done something. He's changing something here, and that is because he calls a prophet. At long last, a prophet has arrived. And by extension... The word of God has arrived as well. And that's what the rest of, of 1 Samuel 3 says. It, it confirms that, 
This new era has dawned. Chapter 3 begins by describing this period of God's silence. Now we get to this point where God is speaking. Verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. We get to this point where it's, it's clear, not just to Eli, but, but to all of Israel, that God is again speaking to his people through the prophetic ministry of Samuel. This reference to Dan, from Dan to Beersheba is just saying from the highest point, from the no most, northernmost point, all the way to the southernmost point of the nation. From Dan all the way to Beersheba, the totality of Israel now knows that God is speaking again. But there's more. Not only is it clear to the people that God is speaking through Samuel as prophet, but now we see that there's this transformation that's beginning to take place at Shiloh, at the place where people would gather to worship God. Verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. What good news. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. God has once again appeared among his people at Shiloh, at the house of the Lord. Things are still far from perfect. We see in chapter 4, when we look at that next week, that Hophni and Phinehas are still serving at Shiloh, and yet, at the same time, in the midst of that wickedness, we see that God is at work in Shiloh. And not only is he at work, he's doing something new. There's a surprising work of God. He's speaking to his people. And the question is, are his people going to listen? We'll consider that question next week. Are they going to listen? But now, as we come to the end of this passage, I want us to just consider the significance of what this means for us. We, we stand 3,000 years removed from these events. How, how can we take this passage? What can we learn? And, and how does it lead us to, to, to pursue the glory of God more fully, to love God more wholeheartedly, to live lives of obedience? We'll consider what God is doing in this passage to save his people from their sin. What does God do to save people from the darkness of sin? He speaks. The passage begins with this vacuum where the word of God is supposed to be, and by the end, there's Samuel, the prophet. He's speaking the word of God to the whole people of God. What's more, we see that this is the turning point in God's plan, not just to save the people of Israel, but to save all of humanity, to redeem people from the curse of sin, going all the way back to the garden. To this point, prophets have been rare. There's Moses, there's occasionally an unnamed prophet, but after this, there is regularly a prophet who is proclaiming the word of God to the king and to the people for the rest of the Old Testament. Here we see with the calling of, of Samuel just how crucial it is for God's people to hear God speak. 
And while Samuel never writes a book of the Bible, gives us any books of Scripture, he's the forerunner of the prophets who will do exactly that. This is God's plan. We see it over and over in the course of the Bible that from this moment, from this turning point, God's plan to save people from the darkness of sin hinges on the fact that God speaks. That God has spoken to people. And that's what I hope we take from this passage. God has spoken to save people from the darkness of sin. That's what he does in the calling of Samuel. He begins speaking again so that he can save his people from this darkness that has them trapped from these chains of their own sin. And here we see this incredibly high value that God places on his word because when people need revival, when people need transformation, when people need to reform their lives, God gives them his word. God speaks to save people from the darkness of sin. It's because when God's, God speaks, when we encounter God's word, we encounter God himself. This is a truth that transcends time, it transcends location. If we want to encounter God, we do it by encountering him in his word. If you long for transformation in your life, long for transformation in the lives of those who are around you, God has given you what you need, and that is that he has spoken to save people from the darkness of sin. What's more, as we stand on this side of the cross, we have an infinitely more precious gift than this prophet who, who is speaking to the people of Israel 3,000 years ago. We, we have something infinitely more precious than the ministry of Samuel. Hebrews begins this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In Jesus, we have the fullness of God's plan. We no longer need to seek after a prophet to seek the will and the plan of God because that plan is, has been fully revealed to us in Jesus. It's fully communicated to us through the words that, of the Gospels and through the words of his apostles that have been written down in the New Testament, handed down to us, that God has given us his word. He's spoken to save us from the darkness of sin, and he's done it with this book. God speaks to save people from the darkness of sin. This past week as I was writing this sermon, I was just sitting in my office, I decided to count how many Bibles I have in my office. And I'm just talking physical copies. I, I probably have 25 digital copies on, in my Bible software and then unlimited if you know how to use Google. Just the physical copies within 10, foot, 10 feet of my desk 1617. On my desk, two, pretty much at all times. I think it's really easy when we have the plethora of 
copies of the Bible at our disposal today, it is so easy to take for granted the life-giving and transformative power of the Word of God. It is so easy to take this infinitely precious gift that God has spoken to save us, to reveal His plan to save humanity, and to take that for granted. But we have a God who speaks. God has spoken to save his people from the darkness of sin. Don't take that gift for granted. God has spoken so that you can encounter him through the words that he has given to you. So you can experience transformation. You can experience freedom through the word of God. That's what the message of 1 Samuel is all about. But God has spoken so we can be saved from the darkness of sin. Do we cherish that gift? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. As we find ourselves in a, a cultural context where the copies of you speaking We ask for forgiveness for taking that gift for granted. That the king of the cosmos has seen fit to reveal himself to his creation. To speak. To reveal his plan. To save us. Thank you, God, for your word. Help us to be a people who cherish that gift. Help us to be a people who seek to encounter you through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.